Daniel chapter 6, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a pew rack in front of you, and I want to encourage you to take a few notes this morning as well. Uh, The old saying is, familiarity breeds contempt. I'm not sure really how true that phrase is. I mean, I'm very familiar with coffee, but I have no contempt for it. I only grow deeper and deeper in my affections for that beautiful liquid. Uh, On the other hand, I am not at all familiar with seltzer, and I have the contempt of a thousand sons for that dribble. It is disgusting. And I won't stop beating this drum till everyone agrees with me that seltzer is communist and we should not drink it. (laughs) So I'm not sure how truthful the phrase is. Familiarity breeds contempt. When it comes to Bible stories, uh, there might be a bit of truth to the phrase, but I would say it needs to be changed. Sometimes when we come across Bible stories that we are so familiar with that we just, we know them and have known them forever and ever and ever, I would say we change the phrase. Familiarity doesn't breed contempt. We don't hate the story. But I would say familiarity breeds disinterest. Sometimes we come to very familiar stories in the Bible, and we, kind of, we know the big picture, we know some of the big points, and uh, we think, I need something better, deeper, different, more obscure perhaps, and we just sort of skim over it. Daniel in the lion's den is a story that's so familiar to us, we may not even remember what it's about anymore. It's been vegetailed to death. Uh, it has been turned into children's nursery material. Uh, it's not hard for you to find a coloring page with a portrayal of a young, smiling Daniel surrounded by fluffy, cuddly lions. And so we've taken this story, we've made it so familiar, uh, so common to us that we've lost the power of it, and that's just not helpful. There's something here that's special and really unique in Daniel chapter 6. This is a story about a terrifying threat, a man of faith, and an amazing God. And this story is way better than you think. When we get to Daniel chapter 6 in our study of this book, we find Daniel is an old man. Uh, He might be about 80 years old at this point in the book. So every artistic depiction you see of Daniel facing down the lions, he normally looks young and quite robust. Not the case. He was 80 years old, and everything that 80 years on planet Earth produces in a man's body, that's what Daniel had. He's 80 years old, um, and at this point in Daniel chapter 6, if you'll remember, the power of the world has shifted. At the end of chapter 5, the Babylonian kingdom is done under. It is disposed of by the new world power, an empire called the Medo-Persia Empire. There's a new king on the throne when we get to chapter 6. His name is King Darius. And so in some ways, everything has changed for Daniel, but in other ways, they've remained the same. He's still an exile. He's still a foreigner in a distant land. He's still waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled. He's still walking in faith and power with his God. Now, Daniel chapter 6 has a lot of similarities to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace. There's one notable difference that might help you as you try to make sense of the uniqueness of Daniel 6. It's this. In chapter 3 at the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are threatened with death if they do not worship. 
in chapter 6, Daniel is threatened with death if he does worship. Right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you don't bow down and worship the statue, you're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. Daniel, if over the next 30 days you pray to your God, you'll be thrown to lions. One is for the worship of false idols. One finds the impetus for action in the prohibition of worship of Yahweh, uh, similar and dissimilar at the same time. And my goal today in this story is to strengthen you, to root you in your trust in God so that you would be the kind of person who trusts God no matter what. That's what we find in Daniel's example this morning. I want this story to be fresh to us, and I want to show you four revelations that help us anchor our faith in God on our hardest day. I want you to follow along with me as I read Daniel chapter 6. I'll start in verse 1. Darius, that's the king, Darius decided to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom stationed throughout the realm, and over them three administrators, including Daniel. These satraps would be accountable to them so that the king would not be defrauded. Daniel distinguished himself above the administrators and satraps because he had an extraordinary spirit, so the king planned to set him over the whole realm. The administrators and satraps, therefore, kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom, but they could find no charge or corruption, for he was trustworthy, and no negligence or corruption was found in him. Then these men said, we will never find any charge against Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God. So the administrators and satraps went together to the king and said to him, May King Darius live forever. All the administrators of the kingdom, the prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors, have agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an edict that for 30 days, anyone who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den. Therefore, your majesty established the edict and signed the document so that as a law of the Medes and Persians, It is irrevocable and cannot be changed. So King Darius signed the written edict. When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house. The windows in its upstairs room opened toward Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed and gave thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel petitioning and imploring his God. So they approached the king and asked about his edict. Didn't you sign an edict that for 30 days any person who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, as a law of the Medes and Persians, the order stands and is irrevocable. Then they replied to the king, Daniel, one of the Judean exiles, has ignored you, the king, and the edict you signed, for he prays three times a day. As soon as the king heard this, he was very displeased. He set his mind on rescuing Daniel and made every effort until sundown to deliver him. Then these men went together to the king and said to him, You know, your majesty, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians, that no edict or ordinance the king establishes can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you continually serve, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing in regard to Daniel could be changed. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and he could not sleep. 
At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he reached the den, he cried out in anguish to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, the king said, has your God whom you continually serve been able to rescue you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke with the king. May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they haven't harmed me, for I was found innocent before him, and also before you, your majesty, I have not done harm. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to take Daniel out of the den. When Daniel was brought up from the den, he was found to be unharmed, for he trusted in his God. The king then gave the command, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and thrown into the lion's den, they, their children, and their wives. They had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to those of every people, nation, and language who live on the whole earth, May your prosperity abound. I issue a decree that in all my royal dominion, people must tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed, and his dominion has no end. He rescues and delivers. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth, for he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. When was the last time you read that start to finish? It's a great story. It's brilliant. It's fascinating. It's written by a genius. And it points you and I towards faith in God no matter the situation we face. So I want to share with you a few revelations from this story that will help us in those hard days trust God no matter what. The first revelation in this story is this. It's that faith-shaking trials are sneakier than you think. Faith-shaking trials. I mean, those situations we face where we question God, where doubt rises up, fear takes the steering wheel, faith-shaking trials are sneakier than you think. So our story opens up with King Darius setting up his kingdom, and uh, he needs regional governors set over the land. And so he appoints 120 satraps. A satrap is a regional governor. That he needed 120 of them speaks to the vast size of his kingdom. The Persian kingdom at its apex stretched from Egypt and Greece in the west to China and India in the east. It was massive. He has 120 of these regional governors. Normally, satraps uh, were most commonly related to the king in some way. But where they weren't related to the king, they were men of power and wealth in their own right. 120 satraps set in place, and then three administrators appointed by the king to oversee those regional governors, and Daniel is one of those three administrators. Now, a point for us to make as, before we press forward into the story is there's some scholarly debate about whether or not King Darius was a real historical figure. Uh, the first king of this Persian empire was not named Darius, he was named Cyrus. And we have a, a lot of historical documentation to attest to this. And so scholars would give us a few options when it comes to making sense of who King Darius is. Uh, one option is that Darius is an otherwise unknown interim leader who's preparing the throne for Cyrus. Uh, another is that Darius is just misidentified. That might be just King Cyrus himself or some other known leader uh, just called by the name Darius. Another option is that Darius didn't exist and the whole book of Daniel is make-believe. So 
I choose option one. I think that uh, Darius, a historical figure, really lived, really died, who was an interim leader who's lost in the annals of history. Um, but you can do your own study and make your own choice, and we can check the intellectually honest box on our sermon this morning. Now, Darius sets up his kingdom, satraps in place, three administrators over those 120 satraps, and Daniel, he, just like he was in Babylon, he's a, an incredibly successful man. And the reason he's su- successful is because he has the favor of the Lord on his side. And so he has greater wisdom and insight and knowledge and ability than those that he serves next to. And because of Daniel's success, it bred contempt from the people around him. They wanted to get rid of him. But they couldn't. They couldn't find any charge against him. I love the line in the middle of verse 4. It says this, They could not find any charge or corruption, for he was trustworthy. And no negligence or corruption was found in him. Can you imagine what that meeting of bad guys was like? All right, we got to get rid of Daniel. You've had your assignments. Now tell me, what kind of dirt were you able to dig up on Daniel that we could use against him? Well, um, I I did some studies, and here's what I found. He doesn't lie, and uh, he doesn't steal, and he doesn't take bribes, and he doesn't pay bribes. Uh, You know, he he doesn't talk bad about the king. Uh, He works hard. He shows up on time. He doesn't leave early. He leaves when he's supposed to. He generally does a great job, and the kingdom prospers because of him. He is the worst. <laughs> I hate that guy. We got to get rid of him. Their hatred for Daniel doesn't make any sense. It doesn't have to make sense. It's just there. But they knew there was one place they might be able to hurt him, and that was in his faith. So they concoct this, this plan to dupe the king into signing an edict that no one can pray to any other god but the king for 30 days. And this, to me, speaks loads about Daniel himself. Here's the, the way Daniel walks with God tells these conspirators two things. One, that Daniel's a man of faith. They know that he walks with Yahweh. They know that he worships his God and no other gods. To know Daniel in any capacity in his history in exile is to know that he is God's man through and through. His faith was not just lived as lifestyle evangelism. He has an identity. And with his words and his life and all that he does, he is God's man through and through. The bad guys know this about Daniel. He's a man who loves Yahweh and walks with him. There's a second thing they know about Daniel. He would rather die than turn his back on God. They don't hatch this plan just to annoy Daniel. They're, not, they're sure not trying to sway him from his God to another God. They want him dead. And they know, because of the way Daniel walks with God, he'd rather die than to turn his back on him. Sometimes when we read stories like these, these threats can seem like they're so far away from us. I mean, after all, we don't exactly have government officials plotting our deaths. However, if you are a woman or a man of faith, you are still in the crosshairs of an insidious enemy. And that enemy is sneaky. He will use much quieter means to damage your faith in God. He won't necessarily bring all the pomp and circumstance of the government. He will wage his war against you in far more insidious ways. So those challenges might come from a hard diagnosis or from a lack of a diagnosis, or a grief that doesn't seem to heal. 
mental struggles or emotional struggles of various kinds. The collapsing of plans you had you thought were perfect and this was going to work out great. Look, challenges like those may not carry the weight of a government-sanctioned attack on your faith, but they are attacks nonetheless. And do you know what will keep you up tonight thinking about Daniel chapter 6? This right here. He walked with God faithfully. He was pro-Persia, pro-Darius, pro-kingdom. I'm going to work for the people and prosper the people. He did everything right, and still he was hated, and he was attacked, and he was thrown in a lion's den. Here's how sneaky your enemy is. He will strike wounds on you, and then he will work to convince you that God has been unfair and unjust to you. Yeah, you're saved by grace, but haven't you earned better than this? Aren't there people who are worse than you who should be getting this hard day? He puts in our mind this sort of quid pro quo faith. Uh, If I do good for God, he should do good for me. He strikes the wounds, and then he turns you against your healer. He's sneaky, and he's quiet, and he's subtle, and he is effective at leveling these trials against us and shaking us to our souls. Have you been through some faith-shaking trials? Are you going through one today? There may be no good explanation for it other than we live in a fallen world and we are not in heaven yet. But when we experience these dark seasons, we might just find some strength to know that we are in the company of heroes. People like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and Naomi and Esther and Hannah, to name just a few of God's people who went to the pits and there they held on to God. I think this is where the words of the Apostle Peter are so important in helping us make sense of the first part of Daniel 6. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. Trials are the norm for people who follow a crucified Savior. Don't be surprised. And don't be afraid. They are sneaky, but they do not win. There's another revelation in this story to help our faith. Not just that trials are sneaky, but that prayer is more powerful than you think. Prayer is more powerful than you think. So, verse 10, if we were adapting this story for television, uh, we would put a long commercial break at the end of the first sentence of verse 10. Look at it with me. When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house. Cut to commercial. And leaves us hanging. Because this is the crisis moment. This is the crisis in the whole story. This is what chapter 6 is all about. What will Daniel do when faced with death? Will he forsake his God for 30 days or will he defy the order and go to the lion's? And who could blame him if he were to quit praying for 30 days? He prays all the time. He always has. 
And surely he's proven himself faithful. And surely God would understand. I mean, just 30 days of quiet would keep him alive. And and then just think of all the good he can continue to accomplish when he's alive rather than dead, both for the kingdom of Persia and the kingdom of God. Or maybe he just prays silently and, and doesn't give any outward appearance of anything religious. There has to be something Daniel can do. And there is. He prays. And, and that's not last resort material. We talk about this all the time. Prayer is not what you do when you have nothing left to do. It's the first thing you do and what you always do all the time. We pray. We sit with the God of creation, the God of our salvation, the God who knows us by name, who gives us access to his ear, who hears the prayer of an old man in Persia. We pray. I love the way that the story unfolds as it, as it gives us a picture into Daniel's trust in God. He does exactly what the bad guys expect him to do. He goes to his house, upstairs room that faces west, and he prayed. And when he prayed, the Bible says he beat his chest and he cried and he panicked and he said, why would you do this to me, God? Is that, that's not what it says, actually. My mistake, I misread that. Actually... Verse 10 tells us he got down on his knees and gave thanks. And that's the end of the story. Whether or not Daniel gets eaten by lions is secondary. If the lions feast on his bones, the miracle has already happened. God has one man who will not capitulate in Persia. He's got one person that no matter the challenge, no matter the crisis, he will walk with God and trust him all the way to his last heartbeat. I think it would be fitting if we changed the name of this story from Daniel in the lion's den to Daniel in the prayer room. Rather than painting Daniel and lions on your nursery walls, paint Daniel in prayer looking towards Jerusalem. This is the crux of the whole story. And the details of Daniel's prayer are an absolute treasure trove for you and I. Another writer has helped me see this well. He gives these these descriptions of Daniel's prayer. We can tell a lot about his prayer just from these couple of verses. Uh, First of all, it's a prayer of intercession. And how do we know that? Well, we're told that he prayed towards Jerusalem. And why does he do that? He does it with intentionality. Write down this reference and you can look it up later. 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8 is the, uh, it's the consecration of Solomon's temple. And Solomon is speaking and praying at this moment in 1 Kings chapter 8. And there he instructs God's people this way. He tells them, if you ever find yourself in exile in a foreign land, pray toward Jerusalem that God would turn the hearts of his people back to him, that they would not grow comfortable in their exile among foreign gods, that they would turn back to God and find forgiveness in him. The reason Daniel prays towards Jerusalem is because he is interceding on behalf of God's people. 
He's not praying for a city or a region. He's praying for a people. God, awaken them to faith. Turn them from their sin back to you again. Daniel, in the midst of crisis, he's not praying for his own deliverance. He's praying for the deliverance of his people. It's a prayer of defiance. Nothing's going to stop Daniel from walking with God. Christians need to have certain types of characteristics. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Let's add a tenth, defiance. (laughs) Kind, gentle, humble, defiant in the face of any man who would try to stop us from worshiping our God. It does not matter if he is a king or a president or he has a weapon at your throat. It doesn't matter. Our hearts belong with God. It's a prayer of defiance. It's a prayer of habit. Daniel did just as he always did, three times a day, knelt, prayed towards Jerusalem. He keeps doing what he always does. Daniel's consistency helps his courage. And it's a prayer of humility. We're told that he prayed on his knees. Posture often has significant meaning. Now, it's not a requirement. Posture is not a requirement when we come to pray. But it could be a good practice that helps us remember who we're praying to. You see, kneeling reminds Daniel of his position. He doesn't stand and wag his finger at God and say, here's what you're going to do. He kneels before the throne of grace and he prays. One writer said this, I'm always a beggar at the throne of grace. And though it is a throne of grace, I never forget it is a throne. Prayer is more important than you think it is. And it is more precious, and it is more powerful, and it is more strengthening than we could ever imagine. To speak with God, to hear God, to petition God is a powerful thing. So before the hard day comes, pray. And when the hard day comes, pray. Prayer is more powerful than you think. Trials are sneaky. Prayer is powerful. Third revelation is this. God is closer than you think. He's much, much closer than you think. So the bad guys bust Daniel, not hard. He doesn't change his schedule. He does what he always does. And it's interesting to me that in verse 13, when they go to the king with their accusations, they refer to Daniel not as Daniel the administrator, but as Daniel the Judean exile. I think that drips with racist hatred. He's an 80-year-old man who's been in exile now for 70-plus years And yet they refer to him in this diminutive way. Not that it's a small thing to be a Judean, but to call him a Judean exile, to call up his ethnicity, to me, speaks of their hatred. And King Darius is sick about the situation. He knows he's been fooled. He loves Daniel. He wants Daniel to be his right-hand man, but he has no other way around it. He does all he can that day to try and find a loophole. He cannot find the loophole. There's only one option, and that is to throw Daniel in the pit. The storyteller gives us some great details. Daniel is thrown into this pit, down into a pit where these lions are. A large stone is put in place over the opening. And a royal seal is affixed to the front of that stone so that no one can mess with it. The king is so upset, he goes home and he fasts all night. Isn't it interesting We're not told anything of Daniel's experience in the lion's den. The only agony we read about is the king's agony. He's the one who's having fits. 
He's the one that can't sleep. He's the one that doesn't eat. He's not the only one who doesn't eat. You know who else fasts that night? The lions do. The next morning, the king comes back. Before they can remove the stone, he yells down into the pit, Daniel, are you there? And verse 22 is Daniel's only speaking part in the whole story. He says this, My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. And they haven't harmed me, for I was found innocent before him. And also before you, your majesty, I have not done harm. In our artistic depictions of this scene, Daniel is often painted as young. That's incorrect. He's very old. He's often painted alone. That's incorrect. The Lord's angel was with him. God's present in the pit. There's this popular idea that if we are to meet with God, we need to go someplace special, like climb a holy mountain or find a a beautiful sunset someplace or we go to the old sacred tree. That's where God dwells. Or come to a special room like a sanctuary like this and there we will meet with God. But I want you to consider where we meet with God in the book of Daniel. God is present in Babylon, and God is present in a fiery furnace, and God is present in Persia, and he's present in a cave full of lions. And as we look at the history of God's people, we find that God is also present at the Red Sea, and he's present at the Jordan River, and he's present in the valley of the shadow of death, and he is present at Golgotha. Sometimes our hardest days are our most sacred ground. I remember this vividly. Several years ago, Uh, I was a youth pastor in Mississippi and got the expected call that a member of our church named Gary was about to die, young man. He has two sons, uh, an older son, college age, and a younger son in high school, and I was asked to pick up the older son and then go to the high school and check out the younger son and bring him to the ICU so they could sit with their dad as he uh, breathed his last Um, Never forget that car ride. Uh, Older brother Jeff, younger brother Andy, sat in the backseat of my car and hugged and cried as we drove there. And we got to the ICU, and the room was quiet except for some machines and some tears. And the room was filled with family and friends who were like family. And uh, Jeff and Andy sat with their dad. Their mom, Elaine, sat with uh, her husband and uh, they sat there and held hands and prayed uh, while Gary uh, breathed his last and went to heaven. And in the moments following that, I saw, uh, I saw one person hug Andy. Uh, he's about a freshman in high school. And I saw another person hug him and another. It took about three or four people for me to realize what was happening. They weren't hugging Andy. Andy was hugging them. And uh, he was intentionally going from person to person and would hug their necks. And when he got to my neck, we hugged hard. And he told me sweet words of Jesus and faith and thank yous. And God was present in the pit. Over and over again in Scripture, God reminds his people of his nearness. He never wants us to forget how close he is. And if you just look at Scripture from 30,000 feet, 
He's a God who at one point travels with his people in a pillar of fire and a column of smoke. And, and then he, he travels with his people in a sacred tent called a tabernacle. And then he abides among his people in a building of stone called a temple. And then he dwells with his people in flesh as Jesus Christ. And now he dwells in his people, God the Holy Spirit. He's the God who cannot get close enough to his people. He's closer than you think. You have never been alone. He has always been with you. These trials, they are sneaky. Prayer is powerful. God is closer. One last revelation in this story. God is more wonderful than you think. King Darius is so moved by Daniel's survival that he does two things. One, he dispatches the conspirators and their families. Second, he issues a decree to the whole kingdom that everyone in that kingdom is to tremble before the God of Daniel. Darius proclaims that Daniel's God is the living God and he's the God who rescues and delivers. Those are powerful words. That's an excellent headline for this story. He's the living God. He rescues and delivers straight from King Darius's lips. Now, this is the point. It, it always intrigues me. We might ask this question looking at what Darius says here. We might ask the question, was Darius truly converted? Right? Does, is he truly converted like Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4? Or is he just caught up in emotion like Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 3? Now, I don't have the answer to that question, but I've got a better question. Perhaps rather than asking, is Darius converted, I should ask myself, am I? Do I believe these words? Do I belong to this God? Have I been rescued and delivered by the living God? He still rescues, you know, but it just looks a little different. He delivers us from something far nastier than bad guys and lions. He delivers us from our own sin. Big difference between Daniel and us is Daniel didn't deserve the lion's den, the punishment that he was given, but there is a punishment that we deserve. We are guilty of sinning against God, and, and with, our, with our sin comes a death penalty. But God came to us in the person of Jesus, and Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and he was laid in a rock-carved tomb, and over the opening to that tomb, a stone was put in place, and a royal signet sealed the stone shut. Three days later, the stone rolled away, not by human hands, and Jesus walked out. And his promise to you is that if you will turn from your sin and you will turn to him, give him your life, he will save you. He really will. He'll forgive you. You'll be a new person, a new creation for all eternity. He is the lion who became a lamb who was slaughtered so that you might become a child of God. He loves you that much. Now, you may not be a believer in Jesus. You might be here today sort of searching this out and asking questions, wanting to learn more and know more, and I applaud you for that. I'm glad that you came on this day. 
Because on the one hand, you have the whole world telling you not to believe, and here you have Daniel 6, this old man inviting you to trust the living God who rescues and delivers. What does this story say about you? It tells us about God that he is more wonderful than we can ever imagine, that he would rescue us from our sin and give us everlasting life. So we found some new ground in Daniel 6 in this very familiar story. Trials are sneaky, prayers more powerful, God is much closer, and he is much more wonderful than we could ever imagine. This is a story for when you find yourself under attack. You find yourself in the pit, taking hit after hit without answers. And it gives us rock-solid direction. We don't have to wonder what the point of the story is. It's given to us in a single line in verse 23. Daniel 6, 23, Daniel was found to be unharmed. Why? For he trusted in his God. Does that mean that every time we face lions, their mouths are going to be closed? No. The cross teaches us that sometimes the lions do feast. They never win. They never, never win because Christ rose from the dead. Daniel 6 calls us to faith. It calls us to trust God no matter the situation. And when we take that lesson, we fast forward to Hebrews chapter 11. The writer of Hebrews gives us this testimony of people of faith. In Hebrews 11 verse 32, he says, What more can I say? Time's too short for me to tell about these people of faith. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, and shut the mouths of lions. Brothers and sisters, put your faith in God and let the lions starve. Let's pray together. So Father, we praise you for your presence with us. It's no small thing that you are here. And you are not here because this is the only room you show up in or the only time you show up. You are here because that's the kind of God you are, Emmanuel, God with us present in the victory, present in the valley. You're the God that's with us regardless. So help us understand the sacredness of this moment, not based on the room, but based on your character. Because God, we need you. I know I've got brothers and sisters in this room who are in the pit. And their faith has been shaken. And they've got to walk out of here strong in the Lord today. Father, strengthen them. Let them lean on you. Do not let their faith be circumstantial. But regardless of what's before them, let them trust in you, the God who shuts lions' mouths, the God of our salvation, the God who holds us forever. I pray for friends in here that don't know you. They're investigating, they're learning, they're seeking Bring that search to an end and soon as they believe Darius's proclamation and they believe the gospel that Christ died for them. Lord, bring new life to them today. Thank you for being with us, for hearing our prayer. Thank you that your presence is more than just a spectator, but you are the God who is active, delivering, and rescuing. We love you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.